The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to read Luke 10, 1 through 20. I strongly encourage you always to follow in God's Word as I read. Use the Pew Bible if you don't have your own there. Luke chapter 10, first 20 verses. Hear the Word of God, His own holy Word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of Jesus to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick that are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is God's own word. It's without error. As he gave it to us, it has every authority to accomplish that for which he spoke it. 
Short-term missions trips are very familiar to us at Westminster Presbyterian Church. It occurs without my deliberately coordinating it that we're looking at a passage today very closely related to our evening service tonight when we will review what some five different groups of our folks have been doing over the summer as they have gone in a short-term fashion out to various places in the United States and even internationally to take the gospel and to assist in Christian ministry. That would be easy to think because of their popularity in our time that so-called short-term mission trips are an invention of the modern day or of America, but that's not true because Luke chapter 10 shows us that they were invented by Jesus. I want to ask you this facetious question this morning. Would it seem reasonable to you if we were to gather up 72 of our children from our Sunday school, let's say between the ages of 8 and 14, and we brought these children together and gave them some training. We trained them a little bit in combat maneuvers, in defusing explosive devices, and we equipped them with Nerf ball guns. If you're young, you know what that is. A Nerf gun shoots a little harmless spongy ball. And then we sent the 72 young people on an airplane to Afghanistan. And we said, you now are going to fight al-Qaeda terrorists and disarm their explosive devices. We expect you to go out and represent us and defend our country. Well, you would say that's ridiculous. It's bad enough that we send out 18 or 20-year-olds to do that with heavy equipment and great training and, and tremendous armaments. We wouldn't send our children unarmed. But I would say to you that what Jesus did with 72 greenhorn lay disciples with only a little preparation and armed only by great faith to be proclaimers and demonstrators of his kingdom is not too far off that experiment with our children. The dangers were real. They were not humanly equipped for what they were facing. But the Lord wanted to teach them some great things. And we find that sending lambs out among wolves remains God's way of working in ministry even today. You know, God could convert people to himself with no human involvement at all. And I know Christian groups, one that actually was close to my family's history that my grandparents belonged to, rather fatalistically believed that God would would bring people into the kingdom and it wasn't our job to do it. Only his spirit could do it. And so they didn't have to exert effort in that direction. But the the showing of the Scripture is that while the Spirit of God is, of course, the agent that ever converts a soul, He prefers to use and spread the voice of His Spirit through human instruments, going out and speaking for Christ as a minority, weak group over against great, roaring Goliaths of our day. We're like the little David with the stones in our sling asked to take the gospel against powerful opposition. 
in the course of our journeys through Luke, I had skipped over speaking on chapter 9, the first section there. If you wanted to just glance back, you would see that what I omitted to cover there was Jesus sending the 12 out with power and authority to send out demons and cure diseases and preach and so on. The exact thing and very similar instructions, the 12 have already done this. Now that we are confronting the cross, and that's a definite goal of Jesus uh, in the gospel now at this point. We've already heard about that. He's widening the circle of those included in this ministry and sending out 72 nameless lay believers. There were more disciples than just 12 at this point. And it wasn't necessarily the case that all 72 traveled with Jesus every day or were with him moment by moment, but these were folks who were known to follow him, they were interested in him, they trusted in him, and they were easily gathered in as believers. And given this kind of boot camp for ministry, when we have a short-term missions trip, we always have a team photo in the team T-shirt. I don't suppose they had team T-shirts, and I know they didn't have team photos in those days. We don't know the identity of these people. We don't know what roles they may have taken later on after the book of Acts in the spread of the gospel. But here they were being equipped with some lessons and principles that still abide for us today. I'm going to draw on four, and I'm I'm really sure there are more than this, but I'm drawing out four things seen in this text today. Here's Here's what they are. First of all, that you would see the prayer of disciples is God's launching pad for gospel ministry. Secondly, that partnerships of disciples must be made first with Christ, then with other believers. Thirdly, that the position of disciples who go and minister in the name of Jesus is to be lambs sent among wolves. And fourth, that God's provision for disciples is to triumph when their faith is tested the most. First, this principle to see that the prayer of disciples is the launch pad for gospel ministry. Jesus declares in verse 2, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers to his field. You would think he has gathered these people and said, I'm sending you, just go. But he doesn't. He says, I'm sending you, but stop and pray before you go. Do nothing before you have earnestly prayed, believing that God has many souls in every place that he wants to gather. There was a time when Paul was very discouraged in his apostolic ministry and just felt that he he was stymied where he was and there was nothing he could accomplish there. And we read that the Holy Spirit encouraged him that the Lord had many souls in that city that would respond to the gospel. Well, this is always true. There's no shortage of people who are going to respond to the gospel. The shortage is people who will take the gospel and who will open their mouths and declare what they know to be true, even in their own simple life experience ways of speaking. And you need to pray before you engage in any kind of ministry for the Lord. Your prayer needs to be, Lord, open up my cowardly mouth, for I don't do this easily. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't to almost anyone. You know, you probably think I was preaching sermons when I was six years old. My mother will tell you the first grade teacher sent a note home and said, Michael's a fine student, but he never opens his mouth. Now, you can't believe that, can you? 
It doesn't come naturally to speak up for Christ. It takes the power of the Spirit working through us. And I think in asking us to pray, too, is there's this sense that there's an urgency about ministry that we have for the gospel, the same urgency of a farmer knowing when to harvest his crop. I was hearing on the news talking about the rain that we so badly need, and they were saying, well, you know, more rain at this point isn't really going to help the corn because it's about as far along as it's going to be, but it will help this crop. I think it was soybeans. If, if we got some rain last week, that crop would be helped. Uh, you know, there's a window of opportunity for harvests. And people need to be aware that that's true with human beings. There are people near to you who are at their window of opportunity to hear the gospel. May it be a month or two or three or, or years in their life, but there are people who are closed at one time and open at another to hear a word about Christ. And You need to pray to the Lord to say, give us the opportunity and understanding of when it is right to speak and when there will be hearing. Prayer is the beginning of any ministry. I don't want to step on toes, I probably will just a little bit here, about a phrase that I hear sometimes, and we say it in our church, and it's, it's okay, it's not a harmful phrase, but, but we'll be at a committee meeting, you know, we start all our ministry meetings with prayer, our session and deacons and deaconess meetings all start with prayer, and somebody in, in those times or in a home Bible study will say, let's just have a word of prayer. I'm not sure where that phrase came from, a word of prayer, I don't personally use it much myself, only because I'm interested in more than a word. I'm interested in sentences and paragraphs and pages of prayer. I'm interested in 15 minutes and half hours and hours of prayer that need to undergird the ministry of the gospel. What we need is not some formal nod, you know, at the beginning of a meeting and say, oh, Lord, we recognize you, the great God, be with us while we do this business. And then we spend two hours talking to ourselves. Maybe we should spend two hours talking to God and we'd only need 10 minutes of a meeting among ourselves. And isn't it interesting when we say that what the church needs is prayer, we're saying it needs specific, submissive, passionate, persistent, patient prayer that will watch as God works. Prayer is the weapon in the hands of Christian ministry. It's a weapon that fights on our behalf, and if we go to minister without it, what fools we are. Every missionary who comes back to the field says, and they say it passionately, sincerely, authentically. I believe they mean it. They say, look, folks, I'm thankful for your financial support. I'm thankful for your nice words of encouragement, but what you can do for me more than anything else is pray. And propel my ministry with prayer. They mean it. And the people who pray, we find in this text, the petitioners of God so often become the very ones whom God sends in answers to those prayers. Prayer is a prelude to ministry, but it is ministry in and of itself. Now, secondly, we look at the partnerships of a disciple who ministers, and they're twofold. First, a partnership with Christ and then with other believers. You know, when I come into this pulpit, it feels like an isolated place. If I ask some uh, objective observer who walked into this room for the first time, who in this room looks isolated? They'd say, that guy up there. 
Why, look, there's nobody within 40 feet of him, and, and he's up there elevated, and, and he's completely different. He has nobody in the pew with him, and he's all alone. Well, let me tell you, if I was really all alone up here, I would flee from this pulpit. I couldn't climb these stairs knowing what I'm asked to do if I didn't know that I bring with me the self-revelation of our God who has spoken in time and space by his Holy Spirit in propositional ways to give truth that he is going to bring supernaturally to life as I simply plainly speak it as his mouthpiece, and you hear it and the Holy Spirit works. I am not alone. The Holy Spirit is at work. And I don't say that as a great claim for me. I say that as God's provision. Jeremiah the prophet complained in the early part of the book that bears his name, chapter 1 of Jeremiah, that he had no strength to speak for the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Jeremiah 1.7, do not say I'm only a child and I cannot speak. You must go to everyone to whom I send you and say whatever I command you. And Jeremiah was told by the Lord, don't be afraid of them because I am with you. There's a sense, you see, in which ministry done by the simplest person, not a seminary graduate, any person who's had the stirring of Christ in their life, goes to tell someone else they have the presence and the work of Christ by the Holy Spirit partnering in their life to speak through them. Jesus extended himself into the ministry of these people. He gave them his authority. He said, look, You go out and rebuke a demon, and it will be me rebuking the demon. You go out and say to a blind man, be healed, and that person will be healed by my power extended into you. Now, we believe he gave these particular 72 disciples some unique anointings. And the casting out of demons and the working of miracles was an apostolic work that he gave them here in the New Testament, as in the book of Acts. We do not believe he necessarily gives those specific gifts to everyone today. That's not the point of this passage, but the point is Jesus still extends himself into our lives by the Holy Spirit so that as we speak for him, he is speaking. Notice he said in verse 16, if someone listens to you, he's listening to me. If they reject you, they're rejecting me and ultimately rejecting the Father. That's an awesome responsibility. We are the mouthpieces of God. But there's another partnership here besides that of Christ himself by the Spirit. It is that of other believers. We're partnered with Christ, but we're partnered with other believers. He sent them out not one by one by one, but in pairs. Now, this is based certainly on a simple and practical principle of Ecclesiastes that says two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, the other will pick him up. If one is cold, the other will keep him warm, and so on. And God knew that flying solo as a Christian is a dangerous business. Many times when pastors have moral failings or leading believers in a church have some time of major spiritual discouragement or downfall, If you would study what was happening leading up to that time, you will find that that person had isolated himself or herself. They did not have a prayer partner. They did not have an accountability partner. They did not have a small circle of people to strengthen them and encourage them and stand beside them. 
Paul, strong as he was, needed Barnabas. And when Barnabas wasn't there, he needed Luke or Timothy or Mark. You know, you would think as you get older and more mature in the Christian faith, you need partners less and less. The lesson is just the opposite. The older you get, the more you say, how I value those who strengthen me in the Lord. I could say at this point in my ministry, well, I've got all these years behind me of my hair's turned white from ministry, and, and so I'm as strong as anybody could be. I don't need anybody. What I know today is I need people more than ever. I need my elders. I need my ministry friends. There's a, a friend of mine from college days. We have been regular correspondents for over 40 years, just communicated this past week. We're both doing similar things. We speak a language with each other that strengthens the other. Even if it's just, I'm going through the same thing you're going through, it's strengthening. When we go in Christian witness, Christ goes in us, and other disciples walk beside us. We do not do ministry alone. A third principle is here, and that's the position of disciples as lambs sent among wolves. Verse 3 has that statement as Jesus used that graphic metaphor. I send you out like lambs, little, innocent, trembling creatures that can't defend themselves from anything against wolves with fangs bared and cunning and strength and stealth who will be coming after you. Wow, that's pretty frightening. And it's true. Christian witness goes into American society and our culture today like the witness of a lamb in the teeth of wolves. We bemoan all the time how American society is, is more and more hostile to Christianity and to the gospel and the people who bear it. Listen, it's nothing new. Yes, it actually seems to be getting worse from the last generation. But if people were simply speaking well of us and saying, oh, those Christians, they're so wonderful, I praise them for it. Wait a minute. They didn't do that with Jesus. They spoke ill of him everywhere he turned, and if he is visible in us, we'd better expect they're going to speak ill of us. Not long ago, I was teaching one of my granddaughters how to play chess. We were having fun together. She knew the basic moves. But once you know the basic moves, if you know anything about chess, there's a lot more to learn. And one of the things I was trying to teach her, I'm not an expert, but I was trying to say, now, every piece that you move, be sure you look at the space you're going to put that bishop or knight on and ask yourself before you let go of it, how can I, your dear papa, attack that piece before you let go of it. If, if that space is, is under attack from my queen or my pawn or something else, you have to know before you put your piece there, how am I going to oppose you? Because that's key to chess, not just how am I going to attack, but what's my opponent going to do? Well, listen, that applies to ministry. Satan is a chess player. He knows every counter move. He watches how we proceed in ministry and says, look, I think those folks at Westminster are about to make this move. I'll be there in their path when they get there. Just on Friday of this week, Pastor Light and I were thrilled, and I can't emphasize the word thrilled, to have our first tour of the completed facility of Harvest Presbyterian Church south of the city down on Route 222. Thrilled not just because it's a beautiful place, a jewel of a facility that God is going to use for ministry, but 
thrilled to know the story behind it. A story in which a small congregation has fought amazing steps of difficulty to establish that facility for ministry in that community of Lampeter. Every single major step it seemed they took, there was a brick wall. I'm not going to go into it all because it would malign some people in local governments of this community, but it is amazing what was put against them. Every step. And they had to back up and say, what do we do now? What did they do? They prayed. They didn't hire a lawyer. They prayed. And amazingly, what was an obstacle? Someone would, there'd be a phone call or some action, and it would turn around, or another way would open, or a door would come over here. It needs to be written down. It's an amazing story. By prayer, Satan, the chess master, came against them. God, the international grandmaster, stood with them and led them through. And listen, the Lord knows how to defend his people against every kind of opposition, whatever it is, governmental, that of unbelief, that of angry people. He knows where the wolves are. He knows how wolves behave. He knows they're there. And he says, go, you lambs, with my witness. I want you to speak, and don't worry. I'm the grandmaster. I go with you. Fourthly, today we see this lesson. God's provision for disciples is to see us triumph when our faith is most tested. Now, I said to you again, and I, I really believe these were temporary instructions when they were sent out without a purse, without, you know, an extra pair of sandals. Imagine it. You're going out into ministry. You know what people do in ministry today. They raise funds. They take a year, a year and a half to raise their funds before they can go to the mission field. These folks were just told, go. Don't even take your wallet. Don't take your GPS in the car, you know. Don't make prior arrangements of where you're going to stay. Just go, and you will find houses presumably of believers or at least people open to the gospel ready to welcome you and feed you and care for you. Now, maybe you think that's how God wants every missionary to go today. I'm not sure that it is, because these seem to be temporary instructions to teach temporary lessons. Actually, by the way, if you looked ahead, Luke 22:35 tells of a time later on when the rules changed, and Jesus said, afterward, from now on, disciples, take a purse with you, and if you don't have a sword, buy one. So this was a test, not a permanent instruction. But this band needed to discover the power of a trusting faith in the provision of God. I think there's some really practical things that can be drawn here as he tells them who's going to feed them and who's going to supply their need. Who's going to do that? People who are friendly to the faith, probably believers. And I think he's telling us today, if you want to draw the lesson out, that money for ministry and missions is not to come from worldly provision. It's not to come from ways that we would siphon spare change, you know, off the passers-by as they go through our car wash or our bake sale or, or our auction or something like that. God isn't interested in ministry being supported by the world's money. He says ministry will be supported by the willing gifts of stewards who will be there and will support ministry. Christian stewards. 
And he tells us also not to, to be deterred by an initial estimate that the money to accomplish the ministry is too limited. That's one of the great lessons people of faith have to ensure. We have to make estimates of things. What can we possibly afford and so on? But almost every time that we, we set up the paradigm and say, well, this is our budget, this is what we can afford, and then we want to do what God wants us to do, we're going to have to say, look, God's going to have to supply way beyond that budget, and we don't see where it's coming from right now. And we better go believing in His supply. Augustine was known for a short prayer. I've mentioned this so many times. I hope someday you'll learn it and memorize it. The great little prayer of Augustine when he said, Lord, command of me whatever you want, but enable everything that you command. What a great prayer that was. Augustine was saying, Lord, I'm I'm willing to do anything. Send me. Give me a tough order. I'll try to do it, but Lord, you will have to supply it if you command it, because you know what a weak instrument I am. And so in conclusion, we see these 72 coming back, and, you know, they had their Sunday evening service and came and reported and showed their slides on, on what summer ministry was like. And they bubbled over. The testimonies were great. They said, Lord, you can't believe it. The demons ran from us. Sick people rose up. People rejoiced in your word. Do you think Jesus was surprised? <laughs> Not hardly. He rejoiced with them, and he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does that say? That tells me that while they were out there ministering in the practical ways in these towns and villages, someone, Jesus, was praying and doing cosmic battle with the enemy of their souls, and Satan fell in defeat as Christ prayed against him as his people went out in ministry. Do you really believe the day for that has ended? Absolutely not. He's the one today who prays his servants through difficult ministry. I love the hymn. We're not quite finished, but we're going to sing at the end the hymn where the writer said, we go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in your strength, safe in your keeping, tender, we rest on you, Lord, and in your name we go. This was the beginning, you see. Even though the cross hadn't happened yet, the day of Pentecost hadn't happened yet, Jesus was preparing for a day when ordinary people would be doing gospel ministry in their lives, in their authentic witness, where they would have to pray and say, Lord, do something through us where they would have to partner one with the other for strength and encouragement, where they would have to expect the world's antagonism and where they would have to stretch themselves well beyond the safety zone of what was in their pockets or what they could think or imagine would be done. And you know, when you think of it in the big picture, God's eternal harvest of souls has been moving forward ever since that day ever since that day, with people like us, with congregations like ours being the primary agents. Our poor, weak, trembling, reluctant endeavors are the way God gets his gospel into the world. That's that's astounding to me because we're nothing but lambs. But God enables lambs to roar in the face of the enemy 
when they take his word and they go in the power of his spirit. And when one new soul as a result of your witness cries out, Jesus is my Lord, Satan, the enemy of us all, falls from heaven flat on his face. Who gets the praise for that? You? Don't be ridiculous. Jesus Christ gets the praise and credit for accomplishing the harvest of souls because he insists on using weak human tools that could only reap anything by his power and his enablement. Glory be to such a God and such a King and Savior. Father, we pray that we might be part of this harvest, not just in formal, organized trips, not just in our professional missionaries who spend all their time out in a foreign place doing nothing but witness for you, but you want to use 72 times several hundred here in our flock. You want their lives to go into the office where, some, where people are heard to sneer at the water cooler about those Christians. And you want the lambs to open their mouths. Lord, help us to pray effectually for how we can be part of this harvest witness. And we know you will get the praise for anything that results because we can do nothing without you. For Jesus' sake we pray this. Amen.